0: Built Not Born, episode 34. I'm Joe Chickerone. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is Sophie McLean. Sophie McLean is an international speaker and author of the book, The Elegance of Simplicity. Sophia was born in Algeria, grew up in Casablanca, Morocco, where she was given the nickname The Crazy One by her parents because she literally questioned everything as a child. At 18, she was raped. Sophie experienced more tragedy than most people do in their entire lives. She met the man of her dreams. Within one year, she lost a child, found out she no longer could have children, and had her husband die on their honeymoon five days after their wedding. By the age of 32, Sophie says she was a dead woman walking which brought about what she calls a five-year nightmare. At the end of her rope, she decided it was better to wear out than to just fade away. So she decided to backpack around the world to find her new life. Sophie then found her best life filled with adventure. She was shipwrecked on Easter Island. She worked on a Kevin Costner movie. She learned how to fly helicopters with members of the Royal Air Force. She became an author and went on to lead and instruct over 80,000 people worldwide through her courses and seminars. Sophie has an incredible story to tell, and I'm so glad she took the time to come on the podcast. Sophie shows true resilience in the face of adversity. She is someone that not only overcame her obstacles, but actually became better because of them, and is now finding ways to help others, which is truly remarkable. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Sophie McLean, entrepreneur, CEO, international speaker, and author of the book, The Elegance of Simplicity. And remember, life is built, not born. Sophie McLean, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jill. We're excited to have you. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do?
1: So who are you? The existential question. (laughs) I call myself a wisdom teacher, meaning that all of my teaching, whichever road I choose with my students, is so that people own being the originator of their life. Wisdom is knowing that you hold your experience of being alive in your view of life. It's the way you're going to view the circumstances of life that's going to give you your experience. So this is what I do. This is what I breathe. This is what I give my life. So that would be my answer.
0: Uh, I want to get into your background, which is just amazing. Everything from helicopter pilot backpacking around the world you were shot at you were shipwrecked doing some research in a year you lost a child and lost your husband five days after you got married wow Mm -hmm. i like to touch on all that you're a ceo of a company wow such a diverse rich background but before we get Mm -hmm. there i want to start Mm -hmm. out all the way from the beginning where Mm -hmm. did you grow up
1: I was born in Algeria, which was at the time a French colony, and at two years old, there was a war of independence, and my father was a farmer, and he had some property near Casablanca, Morocco. So they moved there, my parents, and I had this blissful bringing in Morocco. Casablanca is as romantic as uh, the name.
0: I find 10 years old a very formative time in people's lives. What was it like around the dinner table for you? Uh, Who was there? What was going on? Describe the scene.
1: Yeah, it's a bit particular. When I was around 10, I had an epiphany. I don't know where it came from. I don't know why. I don't know how, but I was in the garden watching my parents sit down for dinner And I had to download and the download was that I was being brought up in a cocoon, that the cocoon wasn't a reflection of the world, that I needed to go and find out what was really happening in the world from despair to joy. So there is a little 11 year old, I think I was, running to my parents at the needle table on a terrace. And I say, okay, okay, I understand it all. We live in a cocoon. It's all an illusion. I have to go and tell people I know the secret of life. Well, I got my nickname, The Crazy One. And that is how my childhood went, is that I was the one asking existential questions and questioning everything. And my family was all about sports and love. So, of course, there was this uh, discrepancy, but because of the
0: love, it all worked out where does that come from? You're 11, 12 years old. I don't Mm. think I was that deep of a thinker at 11 and 12. Mm. Where does that realization come from or that thought process that like most kids would be like, this is a comfortable life. It's a beautiful place. I just want to go play with my friends. You're like, I'm living in a cocoon and there's more to life than what I see in this little bubble. Where do you think that came Mm. from?
1: Well, I can only make up a story about it, Joe. obviously, because I don't have a direct line to destiny and the explanation of the mystery of life. If I look at the rest of my life, this is exactly what my life has been about. You were saying yourself, I had such a wide range of experience and I did experience everything from despair to joy. So I actually fulfilled on what I got when I was 12. So is it destiny? Is it karma? Is it a mission? I still don't know. All I know is that that's what I'm doing.
0: So you're 12 years old. You told your parents you think you're living in a bubble. There's more to Mm -hmm. life than this beautiful little place. So take us through, say, 18 years old. Where are you then?
1: All right, so then I finished my school years and in Casablanca and I am leaving my parents' house, right? I am out for an adventure in the world. And unfortunately, I got raped at the age, at that age. And it was very shocking for me. I was, as I said, being brought up in a bubble. But from that moment on until the age of 28, it's like everything exploded. That was my time to know despair it it's it was joy and despair like suddenly i forgot everything and i dived in this dark place of tragedy after tragedy until i uh, wow managed so, to get
0: up yeah wow so sorry yes yeah, so at 18 you, you get raped which is so horrendous You yeah. said there's tragedy after tragedy i mean what, what well happened? then
1: i get raped then i don't tell anybody because uh, very often that's what you do in those circumstances so Then I meet somebody when I'm 20, we fall madly in love. He's really, he's older than me, he's um, very bright. He opens up a world for me of the intellect, which I had never known before. I was fascinated. So we are happy and we choose to have children. And it turns out I have difficulty having children. And then we I go undergo treatment for two years, which is very difficult. I finally get pregnant, and then I lose a child, I can't have a child anymore. And then I marry this man, we waited for his daughter to grow older before we got married. I marry him, it's all beautiful, and then he dies on honeymoon. So by the age of 28, I was very clear. Uh, okay. Rape, losing a child, not having children, losing your husband five days after you got married. That is Hollywood bad movie style. This is not the life I was planning. So I decided I was doomed. Wow. That That. obviously I must be
0: doomed. Wow. And if you you don't mind me asking, how does your husband die five days after marriage? What happened? He had a clot to the brain. His heart wasn't working well and he had a clot to the brain. So you you met the man of your dreams. you, You suffered the... First tragedy at 18, Mm. uh, and the next tragedy is where where you you lost a child, which is so horrendous. And then you get married, and then Mm. five days later, he dies. What's going Uh, through your mind then? That's horrendous.
1: Yeah. I I remember I was at the other end of the world. We were on honeymoon in Mauritius. I remember being with his body in the hotel room. Funny enough, I had read a book about death and dying just two months before, so I could actually experience his soul and his body was just an empty shell. I don't know why, but I I sent him away. I just told him, listen, uh, you're obviously not your body because that body I don't even recognize, but I could still experience him, which is quite extraordinary. And I said, go on your journey, go, I'll be fine, I'll survive. And then when I actually experienced him leaving and with him, I sent all possibility of being taken care of, loved, nurtured, and safe. It's like I forbade myself any of those because he wasn't there anymore. So if he couldn't give me the safety, the caring, the tenderness, I didn't want it from anybody else. So I actually not only had to deal with his death, which was bad enough, and his loss, but I had to deal with a sentence I passed on myself. What was that sentence? Which is that I could not ever, ever again be loved, taken care of, have tenderness, or nurturing. Truly, that's a love uh, death sentence. It's, It's like no love possible. So the next five years was five years of nightmare.
0: Really? Where were you living and what was that like?
1: So I was living in Oxford, England. My husband used to own Oxford Airport. So I had to take it over because he had four children and I had to take care of them. So... At 28, I had no experience whatsoever. There was 800 employees. We bought and sell helicopters and planes and stuff. I I did it. I I don't know how, Joe. You're going to ask me how I did it. I have no idea. But I ran that airport, I think, for two years and then sold it just before the industry crashed. Mm. So I think we must have Guardian Angel or my husband was looking after me. I
0: don't know. I think he's looking after you. Wow. So you sell the Oxford airport, which was your husband's, but you ran for two years. What was your next move after that?
1: So after that, I moved to London and I went back to study. I studied interior design. I tried to go back to life. And then when I reached the age of 32, I, I, I was a dead woman walking. I was like a sleepwalker. My body was an empty shell. There was nothing... I could do to go back to life so I remember the turning point the moment of truth is when I accessed choice I looked at myself in the mirror and I said all right you're either going to kill yourself which was never an option it's never an option for me it's an integrity issue I would never do that with the people around me that or you go back to life but being a vegetable and going through the motion, that is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. I always had this yearning for an extraordinary life. Somebody once said to me that he wanted on his tombstone that said, burnt out gave everything they had versus died with potential intact you know (laughs) and so I packed my bag sold my house I knew that if I kept the house I had with my husband I would be tied to it I would not be able to leave it because I would um, assimilate it to him I just got rid of everything and I took a backpack and I went around the world. And that's how I went back to life.
0: Yeah, you had the realization. I think it was a Death Leopard song here in the U.S. Uh, it's better to burn out than fade away. I think that's one of the lyrics in their songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you basically said it's better to burn out your potential, give everything you got, than just fade away into nothing.
1: So, there is a life that I'm so not attracted to. I see a lot of. People are trying to protect themselves. And when you protect ourselves, it's always against something, right? Mm -hmm. This protection, and we master fool at this protection. This protection is also implies separatedness and division. But if you protect yourself against life or against people, you are going to suffer a lot because Mm -hmm. you're going to have this separation and this loneliness. Mm -hmm. I, very early on in life, chose to be a risk taker. Mm -hmm. I'm frightened like everybody when I take risk, but I managed to generate the courage to move with life to dance with what is in front of me you know the whole of the universe is in movement right constant movement so if we try to stay still ah, there is a, a problem so I move I, I dance with life
0: wow, that's great I want to get into your world tour about helicopter pilot backpack thing you were shot at I know you have studied philosophy in detail. One of my favorite philosophers is Seneca, the uh, Roman mm-hmm. politician. And he has a mm-hmm. saying, and I'm going to paraphrase it and butcher it, sorry are those that never tested themselves because they have no idea what they're capable of. So people that keep them from tests, I, I don't want to push it. I don't want to try it. I'm scared. And you're going to die having mm-hmm. no idea what you're actually capable of. That's basically what you're saying, right? The exactly. Risk. So let's go, let's go to the world tour here. You got to the point where you said, I would never kill myself, but I don't want to be a vegetable. So you grabbed a backpack. Where's the first place Mm -hmm. you headed off to? Where'd you go?
1: The the Grand Canyon. White rafted down the Grand Canyon for 15 days, which was really great. We were the last trip of the season and it was quite eventful and the water was high. It was really fun. And then from there, I moved to Tahiti for eight weeks met a girlfriend there and we had a fun time. And while I was in Tahiti, there was a sailboat that came with some uh, a crew on it and the guys were chatting us up. And I said, without thinking, oh, I always dreamt of sailing around the world. So the skipper said, well, we need a crew member from New Zealand to the Caribbean. We taking a boat for someone. Uh, can you sail? So I said, no, I cannot sail, but I can navigate. I'm a helicopter pilot. So he said, oh, OK, by the way, that was a total lie. I always got lost when I flew <laughs> helicopter. <laughs> so I met them in New Zealand on this boat that was really designed for the Caribbean. And we Cross the South Pacific had the most enormous storm because we went too close to the roaring 40s, you know. And we blew the engine. We blew the gooseneck. We had nothing, no more water. The water we had left was looking brown. And we just made it. It took us, I think, all in all about seven or eight weeks from New Zealand to Easter Island, which is the most remote place on the planet, right? So there we are just limping towards Easter Island. There is not even a harbor there. We managed to get in, and there is a runway on Easter Island that is built by the U.S. in case the space shuttle cannot land in Kennedy, it will land on Easter Island. So there is nothing on Easter Island except this enormous runway. And the week after I was there, this enormous plane lands, and 200 hunky guys, and beautiful woman, walks out. They were making a film for Kevin Costner. Really? So there I am, stuck for six months on East Island because we had to send the engine to Chile to be repaired, and it will take six months. So I got a job with a film crew and I had the most fantastic six months. Well,
0: wow, What movie was that of Kevin Costner? What movie? It's called
1: Rapanui. Nobody saw it, I think. Right. It's about East Island. <laughs> getting back to
0: helicopter pilot, when did you learn to fly?
1: When I took over the airport after my husband's death, there was the pilots there. There was a school. And the pilots were ex-Navy pilots. I was young, 28. I lost a lot of weight. I cut my hair short. I must have looked so miserable. And those pilots took me under their wing and they were wild, just (laughs) wild. And they said, come and learn to fly. I said, I don't want to fly a plane. I want to fly helicopters. So they taught me. So I took my helicopter license and did the wildest things with those guys. Navy pilot. Okay. Those are another breed. They have talk about taking risks. That was necessary for me at that time because I needed, it's funny, this kind of danger because a helicopter is very unstable and this kind of danger made me feel alive. And that's what I needed. I felt so dead inside.
0: When you say feel alive, is that it brought all your focus to the present moment because i know when i feel most alive i'm yeah. living in the moment i'm not thinking about last yesterday yeah. five years ago i'm not thinking of next week or next month i'm thinking of right here right now that's when i always feel most alive and why do you think it is we need experiences like it's so hard to do that on your own like you need to be sometimes in a helicopter or like for me i've been training brazilian jiu-jitsu for years i'm so present moment when i'm on the mat because people that are way bigger way stronger than me, or trying to choke me unconscious, and there's nothing that focuses you, then that danger in front of you. Why do you think it's so hard for us humans to just live in the present moment?
1: Listen, Joe, Here's do you know how we need to miss something to really appreciate it? Yes. Our survival mechanism, this protection, this mastery we have at protecting ourselves has a most enormous cost. It turns us into a sleepwalker. And sleepwalker can actually function more or less, but there is no awareness. So being present is not accessible to you if you are in that virtual cage of protection and survival. Mm-hmm. I see it with my students. I tell them, I know you're mastered protection. I know you can cope with life because you are so resilient and you are so good at surviving. But I'm asking you to let go of that mastery and become a beginner mm-hmm. on the road to who you really are. And you know, many people look at me saying, uh-uh, mm-hmm. I am not letting go of that mastery. But you cannot access being present if you don't.
0: Like in jujitsu, we have a saying, please leave your ego and shoes at the door, enter with a beginner's mind. The ego gets in the way of trying something new on the mat, where it's mm-hmm. uh you like you keep doing the same thing you always done because if you tried mm-hmm. something new, you're probably going to get submitted or you'll wind up in a bad position. And someone that you don't think is as good as you is going to either beat you in a match or like really give it to you for a couple minutes. So, like that ego is it's scarce. Like you play scared because you want to protect your ego, right? That's right. That's right. That's exactly it. So if you imagine,
1: just for one moment, look at yourself, at your life from the moment you're born to now. And everything you know, everything you've mastered, everything you remember, everything you're holding on to, everything you identify with, let it go. You actually will get to the place where you don't know who you are. And that's where you will discover who you are. But that nothingness, that void is very frightening for people because there is
0: nothing to hold on to. You have a saying, doing some research uh, on one of your uh, talks you gave, you said, the secret is to have no control, let go and put the universe in control.
1: How absurd is it, Joe, to try to control anything? I learned that the hard way when my husband died in 30 seconds. Really? To have the arrogance to pretend and try and spend your entire life trying to control anything is absurd, right? So the beginning of engaging into that road of remembering who you really are, that road to liberation, is to surrender to what wants to happen. So it's to become the co-creator with the universe, Not trying to control what is, but actually let yourself be carried by what wants to happen. That is so way bigger than you.
0: Another quote that I I took down from one of your talks is the universe will give you what you need, but not what you want. So that's exactly it so things come into your life where it may not seem ideal but maybe the long term play is exactly what you need and it brings you exactly where... are you familiar with Ryan Holiday uh writer of stoicism are you familiar with that author he he is a book No, called... I have not. He's a he's an author of the, the obstacle is the way and he mm-hmm. quotes Marcus Aurelius says what stands in the way becomes the way it takes a p- uh, passage yeah. out of meditations so and what you think is going to knock you down potentially is the way forward to a better life. Yeah.
1: You know, it does make total sense. If everybody looks back at their life and your listener can easily do that, right? So those famous 10 years where I hit the bottom of despair are so useful for me now. I could not be the teacher I am if I didn't have all those experiences. There is not much my students tell me that I haven't personally experienced. So I'm not saying that I am, yes, I lost a baby and my husband died. How great. And that's not obviously how I'm responding to it. But I am now at the point of gratefulness for what I have learned, and how useful I am. So I'm not grateful for what happened. I'm grateful for what I managed to do with it and learn from it and the opportunity that arose out of it.
0: When did you decide, I figured out a path forward, it's time to write a book, it's time to start leading others? When did you start teaching?
1: So, when I was 33, I went on from my world tour and I landed up in Los Angeles because I thought I'm trained as a designer. Maybe I can work in the film industry. And I met a girlfriend from Casablanca who s- referred me to a master, right? To someone that, let's say, was a wisdom teacher, if you don't like the word master, but I, you must because you're in martial art. This man, absolutely altered what was possible for me so he had me seen and I know it sounds absolutely so simple but you know the most profound truths are the simplest one right but when I spoke to him I told him everything that happened to me and that Obviously, the only conclusion was that I was doomed. I must have done something bad in a previous life, or God must not like me, or I don't know, bad karma, you know, something, but oh, I was bad luck or something, but obviously that must be the truth. And in a conversation, he had me see that I was the only one saying that I was doomed, that there was nobody else, nothing else, no truth out there. I had no gene, no past life experience telling me I was doomed. I was the one saying it. And at that moment, I realized that whatever I say, I get. And that moment was a revelation I got that I, whatever I can make my life whatever I wanted because you always reap what you sow. And at that moment, I had this epiphany about being the originator of my life. And being victimized disappeared forever. It was never an option. Whatever happened in my life after that, I knew I was the source of it. And not the source like cause and effect. Not the source like blame, not the source like credit, but I create my own reality. And that was just too good to keep for myself. I was 33. I got up on a chair, raised my arm like a mystic, right? I was in awe. I I literally saw the divine in that moment. And I said, okay. So I went back to study for four years, trained myself and started leading seminars to 80,000 people worldwide until 2009 where there was this intuition to seek the spiritual. So in 2009, I stopped leading. Moved away from New York and traveled the world again. I went to the Amazon forest and studied with shaman. I studied Buddhism with the Dalai Lama. I studied Hinduism. I did retreats. I, I But I wanted to map out this spiritual world. I wanted to have experience. And then in, uh, yeah, go
0: ahead. Take your time with the Dalai Lama, such a remarkable figure. If you take one lesson from the Dalai Lama, what would it be?
1: His sense of humor. Really? His sense of humor put me to sleep. The first time I saw him, I, I went to sleep. He the, the man so gets the illusion of life. And that suffering is optional and that everybody believes in their story and what they think like it's the truth. When you get the cosmic joke, you awaken to an enormous sense of humor. I often have to tell my students that I'm not laughing at them. I'm laughing with them. Uh, but definitely sense of humor. Good God, this man is irresistible.
0: I one of my favorite quotes, he goes, my true religion is kindness. And it's mm. just a powerful question. You can drop some wisdom in very few words. That's really cool. So you wrote a book called The Elegance mm. of Simplicity. How did you decide you had a book in you?
1: Now I work very much by intuition. There I am in Paris in 2015. I have this intuition, you have to write, right? So I was by then trained as a philosopher and all that. So I sit down and I write this philosophical essay and I'm so proud of myself. Arrogance never quite dies. And I give it to read to 20 of my friends who come back with long, long faces telling me it's unreadable, it's dry, it's not interesting. They didn't sign up for a philosophy lesson. And that was another breakthrough. I thought, if I want my book to make a difference in the world, I need to put my heart, my soul, and my brain in it. I I can't protect myself. I tell everybody that life happens in the risk of life, and I'm not willing to do that when I write. So I wrote another book and this time I put my experiences in it from, you know, with no other intention than your podcast, Joe. Your podcast is to inspire people that wants to have an extraordinary life, go beyond the predictable, beyond the ordinary. Right? That's what I did with my book. I thought whoever reads it might just be inspired
0: to take risks. That's fantastic. Now, one of the cool things about your book, too, doing some research on it, uh, I think the audio book is voiced by uh, Karen Jacobson, who is the yeah. literally the voice of Siri. Right? She's she's Siri. Yeah, correct? that's right. So they right. have Siri yeah. read your book. That is amazing. Mean, yeah, it's that's yeah. crazy. She's the voice of Siri. And um, she reads your book. That's that's really cool. How'd you get her? How'd you connect with, with Karen Jacobson? She's
1: a girlfriend of mine. She was a student of mine 20 years ago that became a student. That so became a friend. So, so she's a, one of my best friends.
0: So we ask Siri for information and Siri goes to you for information. So, <laughs> so <laughs> Siri, Siri gets her knowledge from you. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. Hey, wanted to switch gears a little bit here to a part that we call Share Your Secrets, just a couple quick questions for the listeners to get to know you a little bit better as a person. You see ask yes, at this point, what's the biggest challenge you ever faced? You have so many of them, so many daunting things that came across your life. What do you think was the biggest challenge of all of them?
1: Looking at defeat right in the face. Defeat is beyond failure, beyond despair, because when you're failing and or you are in despair, there is... A spark of life. This total place of nowhere to go, nothing you know will hold, nothing you identify with will make a difference. That space was the most difficult one.
0: You mentioned failure. What failure of yours set you up most for future success? Do you have a favorite failure? And you look back and go, wow, that's the one that really propelled me forward.
1: Let me think, wow, you're taking me a little bit by surprise. But there was someone that used to throw tantrums every mm, six months Mm. because I, I used to be someone that gets very bored. So when there was a kind of routine, the way I shook up the routine was to throw a tantrum. So I started working for that company and every six months, I will throw a tantrum and everybody will get terribly upset, shook up everything. But it was through drama and tantrum. And then one day I went to see the CEO and I said, I don't understand. I'm the best result producer in your company. And those people are getting the jobs I want. And he looked at me and he said, well, I can't trust you. I said, I beg your pardon." And he said, yeah, you you cannot be trusted with more accountabilities because you throw tantrums every six months. So I can't have a lot of people depend on you. You're going to upset everybody. And that was a lesson I never forgot. It's a kind of what you asked me, right? I Mm -hmm. twisted it a little bit, Joe, but it is a very, very big lesson. I never threw a tantrum again. I tell you that after that.
0: He showed you something and gave you some more self-awareness and it brought you to another level. Mm -hmm. That's great. How about when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body? What do you do?
1: I go and walk in nature a lot. I hold nature as a gift for this human life, which It's very difficult and filled with circumstances and suffering and violence and cruelty. I I think the school of life is a difficult one. And I think the gift, one of the most beautiful gifts we have is nature. Specifically for me, the sea Hmm. can soothe me and calm me down and it's like a hug. So if I don't have that available to me, then I always go to, uh, I have about three or four friends that I can go to. Anytime at any hour, whatever happens, and they will provide the listening I need to realign myself.
0: There's nothing like walking, going on the beach, looking at the water. Mm. It's, it's amazing. Mm. Uh, what, what's your favorite beach? What beach would you pick?
1: There was one beach in Kenya in near Mombasa that was absolutely glorious, but my favorite sea is the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is feminine and gentle and beautiful. I like this gentleness.
0: My grandparents came from Sicily. One side came from Sicily and we we were lucky enough to go there. That's one of the most beautiful places. It's Mm. pretty spectacular. Mm. How about what book influenced your life or changed your mind? Do you have a favorite book?
1: When I was about 15, I read the memory of Adrienne, the emperor that altered my life. It's by Marguerite Yourcenar, which is a French writer, but she's been translated in every uh, language. Right now, I have two favorite David Hawkins. David Hawkins, who is now dead, predicted the shift from Homo sapiens to Homo spiritus. I reread his book continually, like I have it on my bedside table and I read every day something from him. And the other one that is a little bit of a scoundrel, but a a profound one, it's Alan Watts. Alan Watts is a funny, a dry sense of humor and very profound. I like those two because they do take life seriously, but with no significance.
0: Mm -hmm. You know? Getting back to Hadrian. Hadrian, the emperor, was the one that made Antoninus Pius, the next emperor, adopt Marcus Aurelius so that they <laughs> started the chain of the good emperors. And that's remarkable. It kind of blends together. <laughs> How about most high achievers have a routine, either to start their day or end their day. What's the first 60 minutes or last 60 minutes of your day look like? What's your routine to get your mind right, get your day going?
1: So no noise when I wake up. I'm literally nearly incapable of uh, talking because just before I wake up, I have uh, mastered or been gifted a time while I'm asleep to be guided and have experiences, right? So I come out of a very spiritual experience most mornings. So the first hour, I cannot speak. I, I don't wish to speak. I don't want noise So it's a very tender, soft time for me of total silence. I have two dogs that actually are very silent in the morning and they just give me love and we go
0: out in nature. That's what I do. That's great. How about, what's your personal definition of success?
1: Remembering who you really are.
0: That's great. Not on the money. How about of all the things you have going on now? You have the book, you've taught over 80,000 people. What's the most exciting project you're working on now?
1: The most exciting project, I think, is my second book. And I am also, in January, will go and travel in Africa. So I'm taking a little bit of time. I'm still with the internet. I can lead my courses everywhere. There is one starting in January. I'm starting to travel and uh, lead all at the same time
0: what's the second book about
1: i think it's about having a human there is a, a french mystic that said you're not a human being having a spiritual experience you're a spiritual being having a human experience the guy was called uh, pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And I want to reconcile people with what David Hawkins speaks of as a homo spiritus, meaning you operate in the material world, you use your five senses, But you connect to your soul, meaning then you have access to authentic power, guidance and intuition. So you win on all counts. And I really do think we're going through the shift. So I want to empower people to get on the train, because if you resist evolution, you're going to suffer. So it's time to hop on the train. It's going to shift anyway. We're either going to blow ourselves up or... Just surrender to who we really are. So might as well
0: dance. So when you think of all the people mm-hmm. that take your courses online or read your books, mm-hmm. what values do you try to pass on their students?
1: My students disappear their confusion. You know how mostly when you are protecting yourself and in survival and stuck in your ego, there is a lot of confusion, a lot of stories and a lot of dramas, right? So the first big result is that from a very complicated, noisy, loud life, you come to a very simple life, which is a delight. And then they recapture their free will. You see, the gift we have as human being is choice. And choice is very different from decision. Decision is when you base your selection on the external world. And choice is when you connect to who you really are and you create your life. So they recapture that uh, grace of choice. And, you know, life it alters immensely. And it's funny because the circumstances are the same, right? If there is a pandemic, there is a pandemic. It's not taking my course that's going to get you out of the pandemic, but who you are being in the face of any circumstances of life is dramatically different. And my work, Joe, is really the beginning. I give, it's like if I teach people to walk, it's only the beginning, but it's a necessary steps between crawling and walking. And then if they want to be marathon runner or 100 meters hurdle or whatever, then they can go on. And there is much more after my work. But I give the ground you will stand on.
0: You mentioned the uh, pandemic. When you look back, mm-hmm. what's the biggest mm-hmm. lesson you took from the COVID-19 shutdown? The first one is
1: that I learned about aloneness versus Loneliness. I was in New York, so New York got hit really badly and everybody was confined and literally New York was empty, which was weird and wild. I managed to access that delicious space of stillness. There was nothing more. The other thing that I got was, again, it, it comes back to you, you always reap what you saw, is that I had this mastery now about creating a context that everything I taught in the previous year really worked. So when the pandemic hit and I lost my father on the first year, not of COVID, but he passed and I adored my father, there was a lot of circumstances for me. But because I could create that the context that this time was the opportunity for everybody to elevate and learn what was important in life. I didn't go down. I didn't get depressed or scared or anything. It's, it's just that when you are able to master your view of life, whatever happens, you're the source of it. So it's extremely powerful. So it's a strange breakthrough, but I was highly relieved to see that
0: everything I thought for all those years was really useful they were put to the test and they and they passed the mm-hmm. test that's really cool so i felt right. that stillness right. from aloneness versus loneliness definitely two different things and then you created a context with your work you knowing it works the stuff that it held up to the test which is great you mentioned philosophy if you could spend mm-hmm. a day with any philosopher alive or dead mm-hmm. through any point of history mm-hmm. who would you spend a day with?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, it has to be Socrates. It has oh, yeah. to be Socrates. I have just, uh, just this adoration for Socrates. Just the fact that he said, well, Plato said he said it. And we don't know if he said it, but the only thing I know is that I know nothing. Mm. Th- that is covers everything mm. for me. Uh, this is the most profound sentence I've ever
0: heard. Yeah, You even see that like in the world of uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. As your no- island of knowledge increases, so does your shore of ignorance. The shoreline gets bigger as the island gets bigger. And you think, well, I, I know more. You know less. I learned two things, but there's mm-hmm. 10 more things I realized I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The more you know, the more you know what you don't know. What you yeah. don't know, yeah. And, just the, <laughs> and your eyes are open, the more the stuff you don't know, which is, which is great. Hey, two more questions. We started, you were... 12 years old, and you had uh, that apparition in Casablanca. If you could go back and talk to the people around your family dinner table when you're 10, 12 years old in Casablanca, Mm -hmm. what would you Mm -hmm. want to tell them?
1: Wake up. Just wake up. There is so much more to life than you realize. To this day, when I See people being frightened to examine who they really are and, and to bring awareness. Awareness is so simple. We actually teach our children to cross the street. And when we do that, we teach them awareness. We tell them stop, look right, look left, and then make a choice. It's really is simple. Just that practice a few times a day will create. And allow for love to arise. And I ache when there is a lack of love because people are frightened or scared or hurt or misinterpret something. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by wake up. Wake up. I had my offices in the World Trade Center on the 15th floor, and I had a lot of people. Then I You know, led a lot of seminars. We gave scholarship to the people in New York and their biggest regret, their biggest regret was not to express their love to the people that died that day or got hurt and it's there is no time it's right now do not ever leave somebody without knowing that you've expressed what needs to be expressed you know the only thing that saved me when my husband died is that we were on honeymoon and the last word was i love you i mean literally i love you and then he died wow you know but that's it can you imagine if i had a fight with him five minutes before I, i don't think i would have survived so Yeah, just wake up, wake
0: up to what is important. Last question. This has been a great Mm -hmm. conversation. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed Mm -hmm. on your body, what Mm -hmm. would that quote or motto say? Oh, it's uh, always the same. You
1: always reap what you sow.
0: You always reap what you sow. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. There is no victim. There is no victim. I know There's people no get crazy wow. when I, I say that, but there is no victim. You have the choice on how you react to what happens
0: to you. You always reap what you sow. That's fantastic. Sophie McLean, I would like to thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been an honor to have you. Your story is remarkable. I really appreciate you sharing all the stories and learnings of your life. If our listeners are looking for you, your books, and your courses online, where can they find you?
1: The best place is my website. It's com. So very easy to find, and I've made sure that everything is in there. So go to my website, dot com.
0: Sophie you have your books. You have your online courses where you're speaking. You have, you have, you have a YouTube mm-hmm. channel. Uh, you have a lot going mm-hmm. on there. That's a great place for them to find you. I wish you nothing but success in 2022. When your book comes out, I'd love to have you back on.
1: Oh, Joe, I would love to. I'll make sure I make a note of it. And Joe, I just really want to thank you first for giving me the opportunity to have this conversation that is so delicious, right? And the second thing is, I so love your passion. So love your passion. You seem to be someone that just eat up life and i love it so thank
0: you for oh, all the beautiful you energy idea. yeah i appreciate it so thank you <laughs> best of luck hopefully we can talk soon indeed great time joe bye-bye